there's always a FinReg Angle, the podcast providing you with the latest news and commentary on financial regulation. Brought to you by Global Custodian. Hello and welcome to the third episode of season two of There's Always a FinReg Angle. I'm John Watkins, editor of Global Custodian, and I'm joined virtually, as always, by a cast of FinReg experts. Sean Tuffy, Virginia O'Shea, and Joe Parsons. Welcome back, everyone. Good to be here. Hey, happy SFDR day, which is not to get confused <laughs> with SFTR, which is something different. It could have really <laughs> thought about it. But uh, yeah, recording a, a FinReg podcast on the day of a new regulation, that's a first for us. Um, doesn't get better than that, does it? It's the dream. The virtual party poppers out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for anyone not so familiar with the, the European SFDR, it's uh, ESG regulation. It requires disclosures being made in, in the documentation for either a financial product or on the asset manager's website. Um, it's interesting because the rules apply at both the product and the entity level, um, impacting all EU asset managers or anyone settling into Europe. Um, I, I thought part of it was interesting that you have to decide whether your fund fits under either what it's called article six article eight or article nine which is either you know if your fund is kind of a regular fund it's six a little bit esg focused it's eight or is a full-on esg fund is nine um i think that's pretty much it isn't it virginia you're up to date with these these articles i believe so it's it's <laughs> probably a little more complicated than that but broad brush yes <laughs> okay good in that case we're going to start off with um asking just a, just a, a light intro today if you were a fund would you describe yourself as article six eight or nine and i'll start because i think i'd i think i'd be an eight because i i don't really buy plastic stuff i use a lot of you know refills but i've also oh and i'm a vegetarian which is also good um but i drive a diesel car so i can't be fully fully green um, Virginie, what about you? Where does your life rank on the six, eight, or nine scale? Well, I don't drive. <laughs> I don't have a car. I don't know how to drive, uh, which is unusual. purely to get in that article nine, right? That's very, very <laughs> and I'm also vegetarian, so you know, probably, probably on the on the uh, that end, yeah. Wow. Okay. And and if you finish your dinner and there's some food left over, bin or compost. Oh, we don't, I don't have a garden, so... Oh, greenwashing, oh, that is then. Difficult. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> Sean, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think truth be told, I'd have to say I'm an Article 6. Like, ESG considerations <laughs> sort of factor into my life, but um, I, I wouldn't claim to have any huge green credentials when it comes down to it. Like, I try my best, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't put myself in Article 8 or Article 9. Good. And and from what I've been reading is, you know, the, the, if you say you're a six, at least you don't need the data to back up the fact that you're exactly. a yeah. Like, yeah, this is good. It's, it's a good way out. Joe, what about you? I, I'm feeling like, I don't know what your green credentials are. I know. I love to, I love to travel and I, love, and I love to eat meat. So probably not. But however, I would say that I've now started to go into the bins and pick it out what is recyclable and what isn't because my girlfriend's rubbish at recycling. Rubbish at recycling, good tagline. I, I thought when you said you were <laughs> going into the bins that you were finding food that had been discarded. I love meat that much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I'm going green. That's how I'm recycling. Any, any food that no one else wants, that's mine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, well, uh, it's, it's good to be back. We had a podcast. Only a few weeks ago, right in the midst of the, the GameStop uh, drama. Um, and actually, in hindsight, looking back on what we said, I, I think this is a chance to pat ourselves on the back. 
correctly calling out how ridiculous all the calls for T plus zero were, but stating that T plus one was a, a possibility. Now, um, I, I didn't watch the Senate hearing with, with, with Vlad, but I did shamefully watch the Barstool Sports interview with Dave Portnoy, and that's how I got most of my, uh, my knowledge <laughs> of the situation. Uh, yeah. uh, which is funny, because I think Dave is a likeable guy, and Vlad wasn't, in, in my opinion. But, um, but since then... There's been a bit of uh, bit of news and development on the uh, DTCC front. So, Joe, what happened with the the DTC announcement, um, which they didn't say was linked to the whole Robin Hood GameStop saga, but the timing was interesting. Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah, they've, they've announced that they're planning to move to eventually, or eventually move to T plus one settlement. Um, I mean, I think that was pretty much always on the cards, especially that everyone calling for a T for an instant settlement that they knew that they couldn't do that. That market wouldn't be able to respond wasn't really responding well to that um yeah it's pretty much exactly what um we were expecting <laughs> yeah and, and sean you're plugged into the to, to the, the social media scene have the uh, calls for t plus zero gone away now i think they've i would say they've quieted down i don't think they've gone away i mean i think um you know robin hood and some others sort of really stuck their uh planted their flag on the T plus zero. So they haven't really rolled it back yet, but they've been a lot quieter about it. So I suspect um, that the sort of the push for it, such as it really ever was a thing, will sort of quietly go away um, over time. So I think, you know, in credit to the DTCC for, you know, I give them credit for taking advantage of the situation to sort of publish a roadmap to move to T plus one, which would have probably taken much longer absent the GameStop drama. Um, and the other thing I think we might have touched on it last time is they sort of quietly buried uh, their blockchain project as well, which uh, gives, it gives them a really kind of a twofer um, in that way. Yeah, and Virginia, you, know, you, you were part of that, that called it camp, said this was happening. Yeah, the move, does it make sense to you? And do you agree with Sean that it was kind of it's accelerated something that was, was probably destined to happen anyway? Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's accelerated it. I think they're always going to push it this year, to be fair. Um, having you know, kept a close eye on, on some of the things, ION, uh, Project ION that they were they were talking about last year. I mean, they've, they've been talking about shortening the settlement cycle for bloody years now. I mean, honestly, um, even when we were looking at T plus uh, two, when they were moving in 2017, there, was this, there were studies and things that uh, were done on T plus one. Uh, and discussion about it, so it's not it's not like it's it's been a surprise move from from my perspective. But I, it's it's weird that we've got this impetus, you know, all the volatility and all the settlement fails that happened as a result of the crisis, uh, and all of that stuff got kind of ignored by U.S. politicians, <laughs> and and then instead focusing on this, it's just it's it's weird to me that you know one one retail broker is uh, uh, complaints about you know the plumbing. Um, have, have sort of sparked off this industry debate uh, and, and good play by DTCC to capitalise on it because any momentum's good, to be honest. So what yeah. if Esma went on to Barstool Sports to talk about the settlement fails in March? <laughs> would, that, would that push that <laughs> a little bit? I, I can't imagine that. Good Lord. <laughs> um, I don't think anyone would be interested enough in the plumbing to to actually watch something like that. So you know, yeah. I mean, if if we got Harry and uh, Meghan talking about it, maybe maybe given all wow. that attracted so much attention. But uh... yeah, but I, think, I mean, what's probably yeah, interesting I mean, is, is, is going about. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Joe. 
Yeah, yeah. I'll just say the interesting point that's probably gone under the, a bit quieter really is this that they're using or they plan to use DLT um, for the for this move. And well, we've we've all seen what's, what's going on with the ASX and how long and how many delays that's happened to um, you know use to bring in a DLT sort of post trade system to this. But surely this this not going to be in the two years that they that they said there's going to be in. I. I wouldn't expect so, but I don't think they've knocked it on the head entirely in terms of DLT. I think there's still stuff going on in the back. Somebody somewhere has made a decision that everybody has to get on board with blockchain because you know they, they've made some high-profile um, statements about it. And but come hell or high water, we're going to have blockchain, whether we like it or not, and whether it costs a lot of money or not. So <laughs> that's my view on it all. Um, and, and all these banks seem to be pushing it to no end uh, for not... I don't think it's necessary, but I've always been a blockchain skeptic. So, you know, I'll, yes. I'll continue to say the same yeah, thing. Yeah, as our listeners <laughs> of the show would have known. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, on the, the DLT blockchain thing, I think, I mean, DTCC had a plan to go to T plus one before they started getting sort of DLT curious. So but they don't definitely don't need it to, to move to, to a shorter settlement cycle. But I, I think Virginia is right that, there is sort of everyone's put a lot of effort into it, so maybe there will be there is pressure to find a, a solution for it. But I, mean, I think you raise a good point, John. Though <clears throat> you know, sort of talking flippantly a little bit about CSDR and how Europe would react when the settlement fails. The component, of, the other component is the global component. If the U.S. moves to T plus one, do we need a CSDR two in Europe to align settlement cycles? Right. So I think that's the other component. So I think I agree with everybody that. 2023 is a very hopeful timeline, but I think it probably gives momentum to something that would have taken much longer otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about it, given we moved in 2014 and then the US moved in 2017, it was quite a while. (laughs) It was three years to do that. And that was a simpler move than this for for many of the brokers, for example. Yeah. So I think there, I, I think... I mean, the DTCC, as I said, they can't do this without sort of a regulatory mandate. So, I mean, that's the first. And the, the question really becomes, is the attention span there? Because these things tend to happen and people briefly care about the plumbing and then they stop to actually sort of move forward with it. So I think that's probably the next step to really watch is will the SEC sort of formally make the push for it? This is definitely going to fall into the category of things we discuss on Probably multiple episodes then. Of, uh, oh, forever, yeah. So. <laughs> oh, this gets us to season three, surely. Settlement Absolutely. monitor, my God. <laughs> uh, well, maybe we'll have a bit more of a, a blockchain optimist on on the show by uh, season three. Um, but uh, I, I, I do like some of the references so far. I feel that Virginia, your uh, Harry and Meghan reference um, shows just how we, we would like to get current affairs into this show and and look we, we're talking about blockchain i gotta ask where does everyone stand on the nft stuff at the moment um i think it's fascinating has anyone bought an nft here does anyone not know what it is like me <laughs> but no. finds it really interesting um what, what yeah so who's got a take on it sean go I, ha- I haven't bought one but i think it's fascinating i mean i think it's easy to dismiss obviously because it's sort of you know, the concept of paying for, uh, you know, I know the NBA in the U.S. has been very successful with this paying for digital clips of um, LeBron James or whatnot. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think 
I mean, I don't think it's an asset class that you'll see institutions pouring money into, but it's sort of, you know, a 21st century of when I collected baseball cards in the, you know, when I was yeah. a kid. So I think if you look at that way, the money's bigger, but it's the same basic concept. And, you know, there's nothing inherently valuable yeah. about a, a, you know, a, a cardboard card with Wade Boggs, you know, batting statistics on the back of it. Yeah. To us, yeah. I, I know a bit about the cards. I think the Wade Boggs reference went over the three of us British. Yes, yeah, sorry. Right. Yeah. Uh, the US listeners will that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good, good. I'll give you an art <laughs> reference if you want, John. It reminds me of the when Greek paintings, right? Where they say this is not a pipe, right? <laughs> I think who would approve of this NFT thing, right? I'm not, I'm surprised somebody isn't selling somebody a video of somebody setting fire to to like one of those Greek paintings because that would be the ultimate self-referential <laughs> weirdness. But um, it is a weird weird concept, but I guess everything's ephemeral these days, isn't it? In, in the eyes, if you want to go very profound on it, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm with Sean though. I don't want to dismiss it and then be, become like a dinosaur in like a month's time, where you know, everyone's like, oh, yeah, people that don't get it, they're just the old old folk. You know, us millennials are already getting the bad rep these days for uh, from the Gen Z. So uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting space. And like Sean said, the, it is a bit like cards, but the, the values of some of these things are so high, so eye wateringly high that that makes it more difficult to comprehend. I think. Totally, yeah. Well, valuing anything like a painting or a bottle of wine, if you think about it, a bottle of wine you consume, don't you? So, I mean, what's the difference? <laughs> to some yeah. degree, right? Well, I think the, the thing for me is that, the, yeah, so why, yeah, people spend, tend to spend a lot of money on artwork and wine as they, they get older, right? And you've probably got more disposable income to spend on that. I find the, the, the surprising thing for this is that it's being driven by a younger generation who are paying, you know, more money than I would have had at that age for, for things like this. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think I think the money or the value or changing hands is what really makes it eye catching more more than like the existence of the market, I guess. But it'd be interesting to see where it goes, and it's hard not to see it. And this could just be me being an old man, shaking my fist in the cloud. But it's hard <laughs> not to see it sort of being a bubble that pops eventually. But who knows? Yeah, they're coming after you for that one, then, Sean. I, I dodged <laughs> making that claim, but yeah, it, it, you're right. It, it's difficult to see it not. But hey, that we've. Maybe been wrong about some things before. Um, you know, maybe the price of Bitcoin, maybe that was something uh, didn't didn't quite see coming. So hey, maybe this will surprise us as well. But anyway, um, we'll we'll move on um, to to more Finreg stuff. And and Sean, we've we've had a chat about this recently because I've been writing a feature on the European fund landscape, um, which which is an exciting thing to talk about and, and write about because there's been so much happening in recent years, but uh, but particularly in the last few months, um, you know, there was a new bill passed in, in Ireland to start attracting more privately, private equity firms. Uh, and of course, the UK is, is planning its next move to attract funds post-Brexit through a big market consultation that, that's open at the moment. Um, so, so let's start there on, on the, the, the UK angle. Um, Sean, is there an opportunity there, do you think, for the UK to reinvent itself without the constraints of the EU? And you know, is that, is that, is that a, an easy task or is it a bit of an uphill hill, hill battle to do so? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an uphill battle for sure. I mean, the UK struggled to be sort of an exporting fund domicile when it was within the EU and had the USIT spanner, which is sort of widely accepted. Um, so it will face real challenges without that USIT's wrapper, I think. Um, so you should also should note that it's just, this isn't the first time the UK's 
sort of looked at this. So the HM Treasury five or six years ago published a remarkably similar consultation just without the word Brexit in it about how to improve the competitiveness of UK funds. So um, that being said, there's always you know a chance that it could work, but I think obviously for the UK, you'd have to look beyond Europe because that's sort of going to be locked out because of the use of its construct. So it's, can they create a fun construct that's attractive to Latin American and Asian investors? I mean, it's certainly possible, but it definitely will be, it's hard to see what they could, where they could add, especially in the traditional fund space, have a competitive advantage over usage. So then I think you look at more, you know, more on the alternative side, certainly there's not a love for AFMD and that hasn't really become a global brand. So maybe there's more opportunity there than I think the, the traditional fund space. And, and any kind of um, incentives around the, the, that tax that they could adopt, do you think? Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges exporting UK funds has always been that the taxation, because UK funds are used by a large domestic audience, that the taxation isn't always favorable. So they could equalize that with usage, but you're still then just a usage without the usage wrapper. So the question is, is there a huge demand for that um, outside of the UK, right? So... But I do think the other side of the coin is the UK is a huge fund market, you know, still, you know, the ICI stats, I think it's seven or eight in the world. So it's not insignificant. And so if it, 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 selling usage becomes more challenging into the UK, um, you know, a, a cleaner UK fund framework for domestic consumption would certainly be welcome um, by the industry. I mean, surely then there has to be a, a, probably a rise of more UK focused funds platforms. I mean, aren't the, the, the current ones, they, they're mostly based in what, Luxembourg and, and Ireland and, and um, probably mainly Europe rather than the UK. I mean, a lot of the barriers yes. are tax related though, right? That's that's one of yeah. the biggest issues here. And we've, we've got an overly, I think the UK has just gone overly complicated. We, ha- we did have some reforms around tax, tax selected fund regime, right? A few years ago. Right. Um, and that's so complicated, nobody even uses it, right? <laughs> the take-up's been pathetic. So I, I think we, we create our own, a lot of our own back sometimes with these regimes. Yeah, but and, and to Joe's point, I mean, I think there are your big cross-border platforms are in Ireland and Luxembourg and not in the UK, right? In, in reaction to Brexit, a few high-profile managers actually migrated a lot of their funds that they were selling cross-border to those domiciles outside of the UK. So... The other side, the other, the potential issue, you know, as the U, as Europe is looking at the delegation rules for usage, is that they those become restrictive, um, where it's not attractive to sell usage into the UK. Then potentially, groups could use a platform in the UK for UK domestic consumption. The challenge would be whether they'd want to replicate, you know, if they're selling the Irish fund into Chile or uh, Hong Kong. Would you want to do? Do you need to replicate that with the UK fund or not? So I think that's a big challenge. I mean, asset managers are all about sort of efficiency of products, so they don't want to have overlapping product where they don't need it. Um, so I think then you're really looking at managers looking to establish new products would probably be more open to the idea than the established players. Cool. Yeah. Any other thoughts on the uh, the kind of UK status before we move on to maybe some of the other um, interesting countries that that, uh, that I've been covering my feature as well? 
Only that we're going to be talking about tax if we get into talking about this on multiple podcasts, which is probably not the most exciting <laughs> topic in the world. Sadly, that's, that's, down, that's down the rabbit hole. Those. I know. We can uh, we can start having you know things that we just ban from from the show. <laughs> VAT fund charges and all of these things. <laughs> yeah, that, that's made for uh, for room one hundred and one. That can that can go. So. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I'm sure uh, this is a good one to come back to you on because, you know, at GC, we wrote the story about the, the, the bill and the, um, the the Irish government passed, uh, I think it was over December, over New Year. Um, it, yeah, that's a pretty big game changer, isn't it, for, for Ireland? And is it enough, do you think, for it to take on Luxembourg in terms of attracting private equity, private capital funds to set up there? Yeah, no, I think I agree. It's a, it, it is a major development and it sort of levels the playing field between Ireland and Luxembourg. So as we know, although Ireland and Luxembourg are sort of in this eternal struggle to be uh, the cross-border domicile of choice. And I think since the AFMD, Luxembourg has had sort of the inside track because Ireland sort of lacked this vehicle for you know private equity and real estate. So I think it definitely levels the playing field, but you know it probably doesn't change things overnight because it's unlikely groups who have set up Luxembourg funds are all going to move those to Ireland. But what it does mean is that, especially for UK and US managers, who are predisposed to use Ireland, generally speaking, um, it gives them this sort of something in the toolkit that they can use. So I think it definitely does help with the competitiveness of the Irish domicile in the alternative space. But I think, you know, Rome isn't built in a day. So it's I wouldn't expect a rush of assets into the new into the new product yeah and, and yeah luxembourg is also having its own developments making its own moves which is it's just being covered in the feature too but uh yeah joe we've we've seen on the news side certainly haven't we that a lot of a lot of custodians are, are setting up in ireland and, and looking to take advantage of this shift yeah i mean uh, there were i think they were doing this maybe even before brexit but it's just kind of provided a bit more impetus for them to really um, grow their services in in, in islands, um, especially with the um, the private markets bill that they passed as well. I mean, it's, it's just a greater every, uh, private markets is, is is the one area of growth um, that you know people really are going into. Um, you know, probably a lot more pension funds and institutional investors invest into private markets, and and that that, that you know, they, this is a big area for custodians to really um, become specialists in, and, and that's why islands is, is such a, an attractive sort of. Um, space for them hasn't i think the the number of asset managers or funds in in the in ireland has doubled since the leave vote happened right in in terms of of volume as far as i remember and and you've seen you know the likes of the big u.s asset managers that didn't have presence there setting up there you've seen people like legal in general um moving operations there just so that they can access eu so i mean it's been it has had a big impact in terms of the 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 buy siders that are over there too right Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, in truth, that's a lot of um, what I would call management company or manco and sort of risk and control oversight roles have definitely been moved um, to Ireland. And a bunch have gone to Luxembourg, too, in fairness to our cousins over there. Um, but there has been a huge increase in those sort of organizations setting up. And that was also driven by Ireland and Luxembourg also increased their sort of substance requirements locally. So sort of a, a perfect storm of Brexit, increased local substance requirements has led to a big spike in um, asset managers and buy side shops setting up here. 
Good. Well, I'll put in my plug early today then and, and, and uh, urge listeners to keep an eye out for my funds uh, landscape feature <laughs> coming out in the, uh, <laughs> the spring issue of, of Global Custodian featuring comments from Sean Tuffy, uh, of course. So, um, yeah, well, thank you, thank you all for that. And um, I guess we should do our, uh, uh, you know, uh, the same checkup we do every episode, you know, any developments in, uh, I don't know, Gary Gensler's SEC tenure or uh, Bitcoin ETFs or, or anything else. Joe, any other updates from your side? Well, Bitcoin ETFs, as you mentioned, yeah. Uh, great, seg- <laughs> great segue. My favorite topic. Um, uh, and that, yeah, that is actually moving. Well, no, it's not. It is moving. It's, it's, it's real news. But, uh, well, we've seen developments in in in, in the US with Vanek and and you know they released CBOE have said that you know they want to they want to have it on their exchange. State Street are going to be the fund administrator to it. It's just all eyes on the SEC about what, what when they can approve. I mean, they probably look to um, the experience that's happening in Toronto at the moment with the, with the. I think that was the first ever Bitcoin ETF. But I think trading that has kind of plateaued a little bit. Um, but just as you know, probably as more ETFs maybe launching Canada for, for Bitcoin, probably this is one step closer um, for the US. Yeah, no, Canada I think goes, that's the US follows, right? <laughs> well, in fairness, I mean, I saw this the other day that the first ETF was actually created in Canada that we all associate it with the US. But um, in, in, in fairness to the, uh, the neighbors to the north there of the US, they have been they had typically been a little quicker on some of those developments. So I think I agree with Joe that the, the launch of the, the ETF in Canada, the Bitcoin ETF in Canada and Van X new application does really sort of put renewed eyes and pressure on the SEC. And we all know Gensler um, understands sort of Bitcoin and DLT a lot um, from his time at MIT. So it's, it's an area of his expertise. So it will be interesting to see how he treats it. And then I think sort of going back to our comment, our conversation a few minutes ago, that is an area, you know, of Bitcoin, a true Bitcoin ETF in Europe, because right now they're just ETPs, um, that the UK could potentially sort of <clears throat> take the lead on. And I mean, the use its framework isn't going to accept anytime soon, you know, Bitcoin as a transferable asset without sort of a major uh, overhaul of the definition. So I think that is certainly an area, if you look at what the UK can look, try to compete in, sort of a, a UK domicile Bitcoin ETF could certainly um, be something they could move ahead of Europe on. The FCA have been a bit sketchy about Bitcoin, though, haven't they? I mean, in terms of the view of it. Yeah, they have been. In, is it derivatives yeah. for Bitcoin? Derivatives have been yeah. really uh, stringent on. Right. I'm not, I'm not sure that they're, they're, they're that keen, but in fairness, so is the SEC, to be honest. I mean, I think everyone mm-hmm. is expecting, there's a lot more optimism that the SEC will reconsider the position on it, which is basically founded on optimism. Like there hasn't really been any signaling from the SEC that they've, um, are more amenable to it. And I guess Gary Gensler is really the, the wild card because Clayton was not a particular fan because he sort of inherited the ICO mess when he jumped in to the SEC. So I think that's will be interesting to see how the position of the SEC changes over time. But they haven't been all that they have not been much more positive than the, the FCA, to be honest. So I think it I think a lot of regulators are naturally skeptical of it. So that's the challenge. He did field quite a lot of questions on that topic. I watched his nomination hearing. Um 
And it was, I mean, what was striking was he did field a lot of questions on, on the crypto bit, but he also filled a lot of questions on equity market structure resulting from GameStop, but not as, not really any questions on fixed income market structure, which was interesting. Right. Um, that kind of got ignored. Um, which prisoner was a bit of the bizarre. moment with that, though, weren't we? All the, the audience questions were. Yeah. It's a well, favorite means, yeah. Yeah. In truth, like regulators, and no one likes to really say this are always prisoners of the moment right so it's you know they're always sort of i don't think you know gary gensler or sorry jay clayton wanted to deal with icos when he came into the sec i don't think andrew bailey wanted to deal with um you know uh daily dealing property funds when he joined the fca you're always sort of a prisoner of what's happening to an extent which is part of the challenge with FinRank generally is it's always a little more reactive than proactive which makes it sort of innovation a lot harder in the space well, Sean, that is something you can overcome when you are the commissioner of the CFTC. <laughs> right, exactly. I keep waiting for them to give me a call. I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> it could be a bitch. I won't be prisoner at the moment. I'm really, I'm really <laughs> All right. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, look, as always, we've covered a lot of uh, a lot of bases here. Um, so thanks, everyone, for your your time and thoughts today. Um, Sean, where can we find your, your thoughts and, and work? Yeah, as always, please check out uh, City Securities Services Insights at cityvelocity.com backslash insights. Thanks. And Virginia, any updates from you and Firebrand? Yes. And actually, this week I'm launching my regulatory reporting maturity assessment. So I, meant, I think I mentioned it last time, but it's finally um, going through the final tests. So uh, it should be up this week. And you can check that out on www.fintechfirebrand.com. Brilliant. Thank you. And Joe, what did you see up to? Um, so we are, we've got a webinar uh, next week. I think it's on the uh, 18th of March. Um, this is a, a, an inter, a webinar we're doing with Intertrust Group and it is looking at the future private capital CFO and, and how they're evolving in a digital age. So uh, yeah, please feel free to, um, to sign up for that and, and, and check out this webinar. Yeah, that, that's free to listen to for anyone. And I, I challenge anyone to get a more impressive collection of private capital CFO responses than we did for that report. There was hundreds <laughs> and it was one of the best bits of research we've done in a while. So, um, yeah, very proud of that. And, uh, yeah, definitely tune into to the webinar to, to find out more. So um, that's all for today. If you like the show, do get in touch, leave a review or send us some feedback. Happy to hear it. Um, but for now, thanks, uh, Sean, Virginia and Joe for your thoughts. And, and thank you for listening. You are listening to There's Always a Finreg Angle podcast from Global Custodian. Stream on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or catch up wherever you get your podcasts from.